Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Podcast. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast. This podcast is mostly dedicated to 70s, 80s, and 90s wrestling. Today, we are going to have a special mailbag episode. We're going to take the questions from the Stick to Wrestling universe. How can you get in on that? You can join our Facebook page. If you go to Facebook, do a search for Stick to Wrestling, it comes right up. Also, I want to encourage you to follow me on Twitter. If you just start putting the words John McAdam, do a search and find follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. With that, I want to bring on our semi-regular co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, it is birthday mania here on Stick to Wrestling. Today is your birthday. Happy birthday. And the day when this podcast comes out, I turn 58. Oh, man, I, I got you beat by uh, about 365 days. But uh, but th- thanks to everybody for all the warm wishes. I got lots of uh hellos and happy birthdays from the stick to wrestling group uh, today which was fantastic and i also want to just take a moment to thank everyone on behalf of john and myself for a lot of the nice feedback we got on the billy graham show from last week which uh, was one of, one of my personal favorite episodes so i wanted to say thank you for i that. believe that was episode 269 and it was one of the 10 best episodes that we've ever done i'm very proud of it I really enjoyed it, and um, Billy was certainly deserving of a tribute like that. And you know what? We'll do more shows like that. Like, I have a lot of rare audio of, like, early Ric Flair, early Roddy Piper, etc. So, you know, it seemed to have gotten a a very positive response, and we shall do it again. Let me see. I, I want to bring on, we have a third member in the, in the booth today. The King of Recovery is joining us once again, Jim Valley. Jim, thanks for taking the time to come on. Hey, it's uh, great to be back. Thank you for having me. And I wanted to let you know, I am here for review purposes only. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for the reviews, he'd be out, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll well, let you know. It's just for review purposes. Now, what, I want to start. Well, we're, we took a mailbag episode. I got a question on my Twitter that it, it came in before we even put up the uh, the questions. And it, it concerns what we talked about a little bit last Well, everything we talked about last week. It's from George Eagle. Most agree that superstar Billy Graham should have held the title longer and definitely would have had Vince Jr. been in charge. But who should have taken the strap and when if Vince McMahon was booking what would have been best for business? I'll tell you, I'll let you, you guys think about that for a minute. I have there's something I want to mention, and that is. Where is it written that superstar Billy Graham should have held the title longer? It's not as if Bob Backlund bombed this champion. Quite the opposite. The only person who who didn't benefit from this, and let, let me get this out of the way, I was a big superstar Billy Graham fan, was superstar Billy Graham himself. I mean, I, I don't get the whole thing. There are people up here who will tell me or who have told me that, yeah, Bob Backlund, it took him a while to get going in Boston. And I went back and looked after I got George's question. Guess who didn't draw particularly well in Boston? Superstar Billy Graham when he was champion. So I think it was just the WWF in general took a hit when Bruno retired, and he was difficult to replace. But by the time I started going to the Boston Garden shows, and even before that, Bob Backlund was already a draw, and the place was either full or close to full every time. I mean, I I just don't get this whole... And people come up with, you know, okay, well, Graham could have been champion longer, and then you have him lose to a heel, and then you have Backlund. Why are you doing all that? Any thoughts, Steve? Well, I I think, um, you know, had they, say, put uh, Graham together with Koloff and turned Graham, uh, yes, that would have worked. It would have been big box office, but... You know, if if his question is, you know, could Vince have started the national expansion a few years earlier? Could he have had as much success as he would have had with Hogan a few years later? 
I mean, w one thing I have to say is that the WWF around this time frame we're talking about when Billy would have turned, you know, 78, 79, it wasn't like a deep, deep super roster like the roster that Hogan had in 84, where you had all these different guys that uh, they could make dolls of and sell a ton of dolls. I mean, you had the older guys like Strongbow and Putsky who would not be nearly as marketable as, say, Orndorff and Tito Santana and other guys that would come along later on. Uh, I don't know if Jim has any ideas on this or any, wants to say anything. Well, here's the thing. Okay, let's say you keep the belt on superstar Billy Graham. You turn him babyface. You have a babyface territorial champion. Right. What you don't have in that time period is the expansion of cable television. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. People seem to think that with, uh, if you would have made superstar Billy Graham a baby face, he would have been Hulk Hogan and it would have been Graham mania and all of that. <laughs> but you don't have the technology to capitalize on it. You don't have, you know, cable television was growing. You also have marketing that was growing. Corporations were growing. All of these things were much more mature industries in the mid to late 80s than they were in the late 70s. Superstar Billy Graham could have been the biggest baby face in the world. And it wouldn't have mattered because you don't have those components. Look at Jimmy Snuka. Jimmy Snuka was on fire in 1983. He was just on fire in a territory. And that's what would have happened to superstar Billy Graham, period. I think, too, you know, I can't emphasize enough that, you know, the Backlund thing worked out. And why are we trading that in for a hypothetical? I've, I've just never understood it. I mean, you know, Dave Meltzer said it in The Observer, and I have a ton of respect for him that, you know, yeah, they they took it off from too too quickly. But again, Backlund, you know, you can only fill, put so many people in Madison Square Garden and Backlund put them all in there. Yeah, and sadly, Billy was going to lose his hair either way, and that was that was such a big selling point. Yes. Yeah, that, that that you couldn't. No, change. you're right. Well, go ahead, Jim. And also, Backland, you know, a lot of people always remember the end of something because um, that's when people were younger and they're still alive. So a lot of people just saw when Bob Backlund was influenced by Carl Gotch, and he did different training, his body was softer, he shaved his head, he wore the singlet. People remember that. And so they don't remember the earlier Backlund, like you were saying, when when he sold out. So I think that is also part of the problem. They think that late Backlund was there all from the beginning. Correct. He he only started that whole singlet thing, I want to say like spring or summer 1983. And, you know, overall, I mean, you know, Steve and I lived through it in the Northeast, that, that six-year period, including 83 when the fans started booing him you know or a percentage of fans the they were still selling tickets the boston guard madison square garden philadelphia spectrum were still selling out and uh, so I, I just don't get the whole it was a mistake thing but anyway moving on from that we are going to do the mailbag uh first question from jim valley in washington what if harley race were, were a kangaroo that's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me give that some context. Jim was like, I don't like hypothetical questions. He threw that one in there on a, a DM for me. I got a kick out of it. Just like, why do people always ask that stuff? If this happened here and this happened there, then I'm just like, you put too much thought into it. To quote CM Punk, go, go touch grass. <laughs> <laughs> my, my take on it is that it, it's kind of a fun endeavor. To me, it's better than, you know, Mass Super. They, they would have put the title on Mass Superstar, uh, but Bob Backlund wanted someone with an amateur background. It's better than BS is what I'm saying. Jim Valley, you are the guest, so I would like you to select the first question for us. I'll just start uh, near the top and uh, from uh, Josh Harvath. He asks about Lance Von Erich and just wanted everyone thought everyone's thoughts on who lived through the era. Was he as bad as history made him out to be? Says he's 39, missed the uh, world-class glory days. 
All right. I, I was going to pick that question, so I'm glad you brought it up. My, I got world-class championship wrestling on, in, on Boston TV, 85, 86, 87, when Lance was there. And to the untrained eye, mine, I did not have a problem with Lance Von Erich. I didn't notice that he was a little bit clumsy in the ring. I didn't notice that his interviews were bad. Uh, to this day, I don't think he was good in the ring, but he was far from the worst wrestler on the planet. But when it came to interviews and Lance, you know, tr- doing an angry baby face promo, look out. This guy was awful. But, you know, again, he, the, you know, the Texas fans bought him. I bought him. I think he's a little bit, a little bit too hated, is, I guess I'm going to use the term. How about you, Steve? You know, um, I didn't have access to world class at this point in time. I mean, I've seen some of the videos and stuff. I guess I'm kind of like you. I, I guess I think I could understand why they were bringing in an, uh, a healthier Von Eric to kind of, you know, bolster the family. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't really feel strongly either way. I just I wasn't there to live through that. Well, before I, I want to hear what Jim says, I mean, one thing I had heard through someone who had was working in world class was Lance was very valuable when it came to public appearances. Carrie and Kevin didn't want to do him anymore. Sometimes they'd show up. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they'd show up in a state where you didn't exact, wasn't exactly ideal. And supposedly Lance was very dependable. If it came to, you know, a Von Eric is visiting your auto dealership or is cutting the, the ribbon for your opening of your supermarket. Jim, what are your thoughts? Yeah, he was the sober Von Erich. Um, <laughs> I think I have a show you know, title. I, uh, before, before Kevin, or before Lance was Lance, Fritz sent him to Portland under Don Owen yes. to get some experience. So I saw him here as Ricky Vaughn and um, Billy Jack introduced him, you know, Said he met him like in a gym in Florida or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, he was fine. He was just, you know, the 1980s because of Hulk Hogan and then the Road Warriors. And also, you know, tying back into superstar Billy Graham, kind of the, the bodybuilding explosion of the 1970s. Wrestling was filled with a ton of bodybuilders who got in for what they perceived to be easy money. Yes. Sting, Ultimate Warrior. And I think Lance Von Erich would qualify. And I just think that he was a guy, I read his book, and he was a guy, I think, who just did it for the money. He wanted to make money. And when he was making money, he was happy, and when he wasn't making money, he wasn't. And I think he uh, married well and now lives uh, very well off in South Africa, from what I understand. So I think part of it was is he wasn't going to go out there and sacrifice his body um, unless he was making huge money. So I think you're just – Lance was just another – a string of the pretty boy bodybuilders of the 1980s. There were so many of those. I mean, guys like Steve Constance and Tim Ashley that just never really got out of the blocks. And yeah, like right around 85, you're, you know, your Lex Lugers, like you said, your Stings, guys who, you know, were green as grass, but because of their, their look got pushed heavily right from the get go. And I think Fritz did something really smart. He sent, uh, Ricky Vaughn to Portland to get him a little bit of seasoning, uh, before he came in as Lance Von Eric. Here I go with Angelo Mosca Jr. again. I mean, he, that would have been a good idea for him. Yeah, no, I agree. Oh, and by the way, before anyone, if anyone's younger who's listening, Sting did embrace it and learn how to work. But like you mentioned those names, many people who got into wrestling didn't embrace it and they fell by the wayside. 
So no disrespect to Sting, just talking about the way he started. No, you know, Lex Luger got a lot better as time went on, and then he stopped caring. But you know, he's another guy like, hey, you know, I'm in this for the money, but I want to be good at it, too. So I give you know both of, the, both of those guys credit. All right, Steve, what would you like your question to be? Uh, well, John Jantz, one of our old-time yes. favorites, says, what? Why would the NWA crown Gene Kaniski as the world champion after he dropped a series of matches in the WWF challenging Bruno? Were there other credible alternatives for the NWA? What are your thoughts on this, Mr. King of Recovery? Gene Kaniski was a great athlete. You, yeah, I mean, there, I, I understand the question. Given the losing to the to the champion and not wanting your world title to be secondary but i would imagine most of the fans didn't know about exactly that. you know gene didn't come to the northeast and you know that's it's probably just it was just a different time and i would imagine the magazines probably covered for them yeah, and that's one thing the magazines definitely covered for the for them, uh, and it was just a different world. You know, you how is someone uh, who's going to buy tickets to see Gene Kaniski defend the NWA Championship in Atlanta, in Miami, in Charlotte? How are they going to know that Kaniski lost to Bruno in the Northeast? And if they did know, if they did get that magazine that had that one result in there, you've already got that person hooked. So and my answer is like yours. It just didn't matter. Any thoughts, Steve? Yeah, in some ways, he's getting the rub from Bruno and from being on the cover of the magazines. Uh, I'm sure that helped him get some notoriety around the country. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure even in those days, in the 60s, just like it would be in the 70s and the 80s, getting the NWA title, I'm sure behind the scenes, there was a lot of uh, political uh, machinations going yes. on and uh, people pulling for Kaniski and uh, other other guys like maybe Dory Sr. pulling for, for Dory Jr., obviously. And uh, so it, it, that part of wrestling is really interesting. I know Tim Hornbaker touched upon it in his book, and I would definitely like to find more books that would really uh, focus on that aspect of how they determined the champion and who got the most votes. And it's kind of interesting. You know, I've, I've mentioned this on Stick to Wrestling before. When I first started watching wrestling, all I knew was what was on the TV screen in front of me. And I would, you know, I would wonder where is, where is Ernie Ladd? Where did Ivan Koloff go? And finally, about seven or eight months into it, I bought my first magazine and I learned that the NWA title was something that existed. I had no idea before that. And guess what? Once, once you've got me buying magazines, you're, you've already got me in your pocket. Exactly. You know, you guys think you have it bad. I was in Portland. And, you know, the NWA world champion would come up and do interviews. The wrestlers would do interviews. They'd all talk about how the toughest competition was in Portland. And then I'd buy the wrestling magazines, and they never talked about Portland, even though we had the toughest competition because the wrestlers said that each and every week. So it was Portland got ripped off because <laughs> probably because just because they didn't have a photographer there. I remember Portland getting a tiny, tiny little bit of coverage. Like I, I knew who Jesse Ventura was. I knew who Roddy Piper was. I knew who Buddy Rose was. That's about it. Yeah. Exactly. All right. My question from Nolan Lake. What was your favorite year of pro wrestling and what events that year made it your favorite? I'll tell you what. I'm probably going to ramble here for three or four minutes. I'll give you guys some time to think of yours. Uh, I like this question because I have a lot to say about it. Number three, I would say, is 1982. It's because I started going to the Boston Garden in 1981, but 82, I got to see all 10 or 11 Boston Garden events. Um, and plus the territories, that was the last real year. The, the last year, the territories were doing really well. All of them, I found them interesting. I thought the magazines were great. I got Georgia Wrestling on WTBS. That was my first full year of getting that. So I'm going with 82 as number two. Uh, number three, excuse me. Number two would be 1987. That was the first year I started getting the Wrestling Observer newsletter, and I learned so much about what was going on in wrestling 
not just behind the scenes, but like I got a weekly update on what was going on in all of the surviving territories. So that was, you know, that changed. That was such a game changer for me. I think if you are under the age of 40, it's just something you, you can't understand because the internet has always been there and there's always been a place where you can research things and find them out and here's what went on that led to this match, etc. Um, number one is going to be 1989. And it's because Columbus Day weekend, 1988, I went to a wrestling convention in Memphis, Tennessee. I already knew like three or four people who were going. Um, I knew Ron Lemieux. I already knew Scott Dickinson. I knew like four or five guys from Philadelphia. And then I went out and made a whole bunch of new friends in the wrestling business. People like Harry White, people like Tom Burke, people like Dave Melcher, people like Wade Keller. And we all had such a good time during this 1988 thing that we got together a bunch of times in 1989. February, we all got together and saw... A, an NWA show uh, in Philadelphia. We got together for the next convention in August in Chicago. Uh, we got together uh, in July for the Great American Bash in Baltimore. And then, unless I'm forgetting something, the last one was Halloween Havoc at the Philadelphia C Civic Center. And it was just really cool getting together and hanging out with those guys. So that was my favorite year in wrestling. And it, I've had you know, multiple of these uh Friends I met in 1988, 1987, before that, on the podcast. And, I mean, we're still friends today in 2023. So I had a ball in 1989. I wish I could have some of that money back that I spent on airplanes and hotel rooms. But it was it was a great time. I, I, phenomenal. Steve, how about you? Well, that's a great answer, John. I'm glad you have those memories to last forever. Uh, uh, my, my answer will be a lot more concise. I had uh, 1976 will be my year, my favorite year in wrestling, uh, mainly for a couple of reasons. One, because it was my first year as a fan, and I got to learn everything, and you know, get my first magazines, and uh, you know, see see what was happening. And and I think the thing that stood out for me that I that I really look back on now was. Uh, you know, I was watching HBO the night that uh, Stan Hansen broke Bruno's neck, and I'm watching it, and it happened. And and then as you're watching the weekly uh, episodes that followed after that, you know, Bruno was not on any of those shows, and they're talking about, you know, Stan, uh, Stan Hansen's going to wrestle Monsoon, or Stan Hansen's going to wrestle Putski at the Garden. And and then they start hyping the Shea Stadium thing, but Bruno wasn't mentioned. It was, you know, they're really hyping on the Ali versus Inoki part. And, you know, everything was up in the air. It was like a big mystery. Like, what's happening? What's, how's this guy going to work out? Eventually, Bruno comes back. Uh, you know, you see him doing the interviews for the Shea Stadium. Uh, you never saw the match, which is still missing. But I think the match is out there somewhere. Uh, but the rest of the year was just exciting. You know, you had uh, all the other territories, the things going on. Uh, so 76 would be my favorite Before year. I, I get to Jim, I want to throw something in. Uh, number one, it, it's it's hard to describe. There's, I don't think there's anyone I can compare to Muhammad Ali in 1976. I mean, he was the, the star of star of stars. I mean, I don't think anyone can compare to him today. I mean, I'm serious when I say this, not even Michael Jordan in the late 80s and 90s. That's how huge right. Muhammad Ali was. Number two, I have a book. I bought it two, three years ago. It's called When It Was Real. And if you're a WWF fan from the 70s, you got to get this book. It has a year-by-year -year account of everything that went on in the WWF every year in, in the – during the, the decade, it was, you know, it was just a, a, an encyclopedia of that decade. And when I first opened it up, the first thing I hit is 1976, because that's when I first became a fan. And the first thing the guy said was something like uh, Nikita Malkovich, really good guy. First thing he says was, yeah, 1976 was kind of a downer. I mean, something to that effect. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> But, I mean, you know what? I didn't see anything before that, so I don't know. But, anyway, Jim, what was your favorite year being a wrestling fan? 
yeah, how do you think I feel? Because we got cable in 1983, and I was able to watch Georgia Championship Wrestling. And I hear you guys just crapping all over Georgia <laughs> Championship Wrestling in 1983. That's, that's like anyway, my no. calling card, like kicking that promotion around from 1983. No, I, it's, I enjoy it ironically, but no, I understand what you're saying. Okay. To understand this, to be a wrestling fan, you know, before Hulkamania in the WWF expansion was a very isolating pastime. Because anytime you brought up, you watched wrestling, it was always, you know, it's fake or you watch that <laughs> fake stuff or they'd laugh at you because they think you're an idiot. So you would just compartmentalize this. I spent most of my time watching wrestling alone or reading wrestling magazines alone. I got it. I was seemingly an intelligent, regular person, but I had this deep, dark secret that I had to shield from the rest of the world, yet <laughs> lest they judged me. So I did the same thing. I think it's a very common experience. Yeah. Very, very common. So I guess it's very strange for people when you've got, you know, 27 pay-per-views happening this weekend alone as we're recording <laughs> and a million wrestling podcasts and everything is just, there's so much wrestling content and there's figures and there's video games and everything. For me, the best two eras, 1984 to 85. With the expansion of cable, when you could get Mid-South Wrestling and WWF and NWA and various territories, Southwest, various territories all across the country, and you could watch them. Granted, many of them were on at like 7 a.m. or 2 in the morning, but by God, I could stay up and watch them. And then, with the first WrestleMania, suddenly... People at school were talking about wrestling. It's like, you watch wrestling? Oh my gosh, I watch wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then there were, there were action figures. Oh my God, I would have killed for action figures when I was a kid. I wanted to be marketed to as a child. And now I'm seeing all of these things as like validation. Like, I knew it. I knew I wasn't the only one. <laughs> and so that was a very exciting time. Now, granted, 1986 came around and no one gave a shit about wrestling again. But <laughs> for that brief moment, it was a beautiful thing. And then I would say uh, the summer of 1996 to 97, with the turn of Hulk Hogan, the arrival of the NWO, because you have WCW going gangbusters then you have the 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 uh the ascension of stone cold steve austin and so you have two companies that even for a brief moment are are thriving and not only that you've got what you don't have in 1985 you've got very good wrestling often great wrestling sometimes Plus, you've got the Nintendo 64 video games. So I would say those two times for me are the highlights of uh, wrestling. Jim, I've, I've mentioned this before. Back in the day when I first started watching wrestling, it was on Channel 56 in Boston at 11 a.m. on Saturdays. And that was it. That was your one hour of wrestling and no VCR, anything like that. If you missed it, you missed it. You went a week without wrestling. If my family, my family wanted to visit uh, my extended family in New York, guess what? I missed wrestling. And I remember back in the 90s, you know, here we are with this highly rated program, two highly rated programs on national cable, fighting it out on primetime TV. It blew my mind. Oh, and then I, I go to the mall, I go wherever, and everyone had, not everyone, literally, but if you looked around, someone would have would be wearing a wrestling shirt. It was unreal. Yeah, it was I don't know if we'll ever get that again because of the fragmentation of media, but it was a beautiful, glorious moment. It was, you know, 
I don't know if we'll ever see it again, but then again, I didn't think we'd ever see it in the first place. So what do I know? Steve, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, uh, who would have believed in the 70s and the 80s that, hey, uh, when, we get, when we get to the mid or to the late 1990s, uh, two pro wrestling shows are going to outrate Monday Night Football on Monday nights. I mean, if you told that to a sane person, they would have laughed in your face. Uh, you're, you're 100% correct. What happened... You know, in the 90s, during the, the, you know, the Monday Night War era, I mean, and like I said, I don't think we're ever going to see that again, but I didn't think we're ever going to see it in the first place. I'll tell you, Jim, uh, is it your turn? Sure, why not? All right, I'm doing this one because of my experience at uh, Cauliflower Alley. All right. So this is from uh, Kevin Elias, and he asks, what are your thoughts on Sam Houston? I know he's on the smaller side. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. I know he's on the smaller side, but I feel like they could have done more with him, especially when he was in WWF. It seemed to me like he was going over, but then nothing happened. All right. I, I would like to share my thoughts on this. This is also one of the questions I was hoping I could get to. If you saw Sam Houston for the first time in 1989, you would have had no issues with his size. He came onto the national scene on WTBS in 1985 when he was still 19 or 20 years old. And by 89, he had filled out and he was definitely big enough. I also got to see Sam Houston when he got his brief push in Bill Watts UWF in 1987, right before Bill Watts sold the, the promotion. And Sam Houston, you know, he had already gotten a lot bigger. He could work. And it looked like we had a future star on our hands. But one thing I think that might have worked against Sam is, you know, he had been typecast as a small guy, and that's all anyone could see him as. But like I said, you know, by 89, he was definitely big enough. Anyone else have thoughts on Sam Houston? Well, I, I remember him getting into the WWF. Like you said, he'd already had a, a decent run in Mid-Atlantic and other places, Florida. I mean, you could tell he was a good worker in the ring, but if you were just watching WWF TV, uh, he was just he was just featured like on primetime. He never really made it to the syndicated shows, or if he did, very little. And he never really focused on his personality. You never really had a connection with him, and and that's what the WWF was all about. Then, I mean, connecting with the audience. And if he didn't connect, then there was, you know, no nothing for him to do. Jim, you mentioned Cauliflower Alley. Did you meet Sam there? Yeah, yeah, I've interacted with him a little bit. What was he like? Well, here's my point is uh, there's a, usually a uh, – it's not affiliated with Cauliflower Alley, but usually adjacent to Cauliflower Alley, there's a wrestling show, usually the first two nights. And it's just a voluntary thing. Nobody gets paid, and people just show up, bring their gear, and they put together wrestling shows. And Sam has been a part – of these wrestling shows. Matter of fact, one time he did a tag team match with Santana Jackson, the uh, Michael Jackson impersonator who does the moonwalk yes. DDT. It's, that was very, very funny to see those two together. Sam played it perfectly. But my point is, Sam, in his era, even Jim Cornette made jokes about it on NWA TV, talking about how he could tread water in a garden hose. <laughs> Sam stands in that ring with the wrestlers that I see cauliflower alley and he is a giant. Oh my gosh. He is, he's, he towers over everyone. And I just sit there and I think to myself, that guy was too small. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's like, He's like Billy Gunn, I guess. He's just this towering figure. And he's, you know, he's a little heavier, but I mean, he can't be dramatically bigger than he was when he was younger. But it's just so funny to meet Sam Houston in person. And you look way up to see him. And people still talk about how he was, he was on the smaller side. 
No, and you know, again, the people talk about Mike Von Erich was too small. I mean, Mike Von Erich before he got sick was getting big. I'm telling you right now, it's just that you know, when you're 18, 19 years old, as Mike Von Erich was when he first started, as Sam Houston was, Barry Windham had a Sam Houston 1985 body when he first started. And look how big he got. That's exactly right. Okay. Steve, would you like to pick a question? I have found a question that I really love. Uh, This is from the Arcadian Vanguard's own Scott Cornish. He says, is there any living wrestling veteran you've never met but always wanted to? Would you pay $20 or the current market value to have your photo taken with them? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll start. I don't think there's anyone living that I've never met that like I would really want to go out of my way to like have a, a deep conversation with. And that's not a knock on the guys. A lot of the guys that I would be most interested in have passed on either that or I've just met them. Um, but to answer the second part, I thought this was really interesting. Would you pay $20 or the current market price to have your photo taken with them? The answer, you know, it's human nature. You never want to pay for something that you used to get for free. If you've always always had to pay for it, you're fine. But, you know, one of my friends in the uh, in the 80s refused to get cable because he was used to getting television for free. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, once again, human nature. I would say the one guy that I would pay a decent amount of money for to get a picture with would be Ric Flair, and that's just about it. I mean, and you know, he's my all-time favorite wrestler. He's still around, so he's the one guy that I would do that with. How about how about you, Jim? You know, I kind of have the same experience. I've gotten a ton of free pictures, so um, I will say this: one time at Cauliflower Alley, Baron von Raschke was there, and he was charging five bucks. And I was like, "Ah, it's five bucks, and it's Baron von Raschke." So, got to get a picture with Baron von Raschke. Um, I can't think of, of anybody that I would, but not off the top of my head anyway, no. Sorry. No, you know what? I'll throw one in. I'm Antonio Noki. How about you, Steve? Well, uh, I'm surprised you guys haven't touched on this. I, I would definitely put down $20 to have my photo taken with Vince McMahon. He's a wrestler, you know, so. <laughs> okay, I take that back. I think he, he still has the mustache. Oh, <laughs> right. Right. Actually, there should be a mustache, a mustache discount. Is really what there should be. No, a premium price for the mustache. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if, if everyone has seen a recent picture of Vince McMahon with this ridiculous shoe polish in his hair and this, you know, villain from the 1930s mustache. But if you, you know, just Google Vince McMahon mustache, you'll either, you'll either laugh or cry. It's it's painful. What young woman is he dating that is telling him that looks good? Hey, pal, I I look good like this. (laughs) That is just a late life crisis. That that is a screaming late late life crisis. I don't think I've had a midlife crisis. I I think, actually, I'm probably past midlife. So hopefully nothing like that happens to me between now and the, the part that they put me in the ground. But anyway... Let me pick a topic. I just had it, and I scrolled down. Ian Totten asks, is Superstar Billy Graham the most influential wrestler of all time? I like this question because um, my initial reaction was, well, he's probably in the top four, right? It's either Graham. the, The top four in no order, I initially said, was Superstar Billy Graham, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, or the Road Warriors. But then I, I asked myself, would there have been a Hulk Hogan without superstar Billy Graham? Categorically, no. Would there have been a Road Warriors without superstar Billy Graham? Maybe not. Probably not. Ric Flair, probably there would have been a Ric Flair. So you've eliminated one and a half of these guys just by, you know, hey, they borrowed heavily from superstar Billy Graham. So in my my answer is ultimately yes. He is the most influential wrestler of all time. Uh, St- uh, Steve, your thoughts. You know, I I, um, I think I uh, 
kind of disagree with you a little bit on that. I, I would say he was maybe the most influential as far as the wrestlers that, that came after him in just his period. But as far as uh, maybe all time, we're talking all time, I think Gorgeous George probably had the biggest influence just because he brought so much of the uh, showmanship and the drama and the bobby pins and the bleaching the hair. I mean, there were other bleach blondes probably before him. I think Blassie was around before Gorgeous George, but, uh, you know, I, I, I would put Gorgeous George in that conversation. Before I ask uh, Jim who he thinks, you know, what he thinks of that question, Lou has said, what woman is Vince McMahon dating who thinks that looks good? Morticia Adams, of course. Good one, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim, your your thoughts on Ian's question? You know, wrestling doesn't exist in a vacuum. And you said it yourself. In the 70s, Muhammad Ali was a megastar. And Muhammad Ali, superstar Billy Graham, copied Muhammad Ali's interviews. Now, according to legend, Muhammad Ali copied Fred Blassie and or Gorgeous George depending on whomever is telling the story. So does that mean that Gorgeous George and or Fred Blassie was actually the most influential? Because without them, you don't have Ali. Then without Ali, I don't think you have superstar Billy Graham. Good point. So, and here's, and here's the other thing. Vince McMahon is still going to have a bodybuilding finish. There's still the bodybuilding explosion with Arnold and Franco Columbo and was it Frank Zane and, and everybody. I mean, those guys were on wide world of sports and blowing up a hot air or what is it? Hot water bottles and all of those feats of strength. Um, somebody would have transferred that if, if it not superstar Billy Graham. And a lot of people, Dusty Rhodes, a lot of people were copying Muhammad Ali's interview style because he was so popular. Wrestling steals so many things. That was one of the things that bothered me as a kid. It's like, okay, Road Warriors, that comes from a movie. Legion of Doom, that comes from a Super Friends cartoon. It felt like everything wrestling took stole blatantly from something else. So I don't begrudge superstar Billy Graham, his place in history, but I guess I don't put him up on this pedestal that so many other people do it. And maybe that makes me a bad guy. No, it doesn't. It means that you just didn't grow up around here and you, you didn't experience the, the peak of superstar Billy Graham, but you brought up a really good point. You know, the Hitman. Hey, that's Thomas Hearns. Hands of Stone. Right. That's Roberto Duran, etc. Right. Well, I mean, I experienced superstar Billy Graham in the magazines. I saw him. I mean, I was a big fan of Bob Backlund, just primarily from from reading about him in the magazine. So, I mean, those type of things did transfer to me. You know, a little bit of an aside. I mean, the magazines had fun with Bob Backlund. You know, they would make up quotes from him where everything would be like, <laughs> oh, golly. He would say, oh, golly, to start every <laughs> sentence. They'd do it with Bruno, with doggone it. He'd start every right. sentence with. So that's, <laughs> Jim, those guys really weren't like what the aftermags portrayed them as all of the time. Wait, what? The the they the wrestlers I'm gonna need a minute. Okay. All right, Steve. I believe it is your turn, sir. Okay, I've got a good one All for right. you guys. Uh Br- Brian Jones asks, um, what are your two to three most prized pieces of wrestling memorabilia that you own? And what are two to three pieces that you wish you had? I, I am not a memorabilia guy. I have a couple of, of Tennessee Volunteers memorabilia. I have a signed mini helmet from Peyton Manning that I got as soon as he came out of college. I have a helmet signed by the the entire 1999 team, a few other guys, but that's it. I, I'm just not a big memorabilia guy. How about you, Jim? You know, I don't collect a lot of stuff. I've got too much stuff. I used to have too much stuff. So I used to do a uh, radio show in Portland and uh, I would have a bunch of stars on and 
I got the number for the Road Warriors. So I call and I make arrangements for Road Warrior Hawk to be on the show. Saturday comes and for the show, and what a surprise, he's nowhere to be found. And I have Animal's number. And I'm just thinking these guys are still doing business together. So they, you know, I have no idea that Hawk is in Florida and Animal is in Minnesota. And I, I call Animal and I, hey, do you know where Hawk is? Thinking, you know. He would know, perhaps, but didn't know. And Animal was nice enough to come on and do the show, which I was like, wow, what a stand-up guy. Anyway, to apologize, Hawk sent me a bunch of um, pictures, autographed pictures he sent me, which was very nice, and of both of them, but he signed it himself. And then later, when I was doing a fan fest, I got to interview Road Warrior Animal in person. And he was able to sign it. So I have a personally autographed picture of both, uh, uh, both Hawk and Animal, which, you know, Road Warriors growing up in the eighties. Of course, you love, love the Road Warriors. It's sort of wrestling. I have a book that Bob Zamuda wrote about Andy Kaufman. I've read that book. And he signed it when he came to uh, Portland when I was working at a radio station and he signed it as Tony Clifton. <laughs> When you come to Vegas, I'm going to make sure it's closed or something. You, I'm not going to let you in. Something like that. <laughs> so I cherish uh, my uh, Tony Clifton autograph. And then I've got some, oh, I know what I have. I have. So I went to uh, Japan with Fumi Saito. My first trip, we went to um, Robert Steakhouse, you know, the famous oh, place yeah. where all the go. So I didn't know this. This was in 2007. And I go there, and I wanted a jacket. And I just thought, you went to the gift shop, bought a jacket. And they, uh, oh, no, we're all out of jackets. And I was like, that's very strange. <laughs> and I, I found out later that it's only for wrestlers. And I just, I wish they would have told me that. I wouldn't have pushed it. I didn't know. And I'm fine not having a jacket. I'm not a wrestler. I shouldn't have a jacket. I'm, I'm cool with that. Anyway, they gave me a T-shirt. Uh, that says Ribera Steakhouse, and it also has a logo for the gym, the Road Warriors gym from uh, Minneapolis. So I have that. Uh, it's probably a very rare T-shirt, I would imagine. Okay, and you know what? If, if if memorabilia is magazines, then that used to be my memorabilia thing. But even even that's gone away. Steve, how about you? Your memorabilia thing? Um, right now, as far as what I still have, I have, um, on my wall, I've got a picture with me with Bruno. I have a, actually a picture of my wife with Hulk Hogan that we, we just bumped into one day. Well, I wasn't with her, but she was at uh, a health food store in Clearwater near here. And, uh, he couldn't have been nicer. Just took a nice picture with her. Uh, I used to have that 1976 WWF yearbook and we had these girls come over that I had like a slumber party over here and they took it with them apparently. Apparently, they wanted like a 30-year-old WWF magazine to take home with them. Uh, but as far as maybe a piece of uh, memorabilia I would like, I, w I wouldn't mind a replica belt. I don't know if uh, – I, I don't see myself wearing it in public, but it would be kind of fun to just to have it to uh, hoist up in the air when the Yankees win the World Series or something. All right. Well, you'll have that belt for like 2040, 2041. <laughs> I shouldn't talk as a Red Sox fan, but anyway – they're playing pretty good. They're playing better. All right. Um, Michael C. Hulse asks, would ECW have been more successful had they toured more and changed their style to fit the area they were in, i.e. a southern style in Tennessee, more scientific in Florida or Minnesota, hardcore in Pennsylvania, but slow and plotting in New York and Massachusetts? Michael, no. That era was gone before ecw even came around um i mean the world has become a smaller and smaller place i mean people in new york don't even have you know younger people in new york don't even have new york accents anymore you know people from london have toned down their accents it's just the way it is you know and i think ecw really had to be more true to itself. Like, you know, this is what we are, buy the tickets or don't. And I've always said, you know, I've had people tell me, like, you know, when I was during my brief for foray as a wrestling promoter, you know, oh, you know, wrestling, 
on the wrestling show, you should have something for everyone. And I was a little bit before my ECW time. I was like, no, you know, we're not going to do that. That's j- just a way to piss everybody off, in my opinion. You know, be who you are, sell what you have. I mean, that's what Paul Bosch did. That's what Vince McMahon Sr. did. Uh, you know, this is what we're offering. And if you like it, buy the ticket. And of course, you make adjustments based on the audience. But, you know, ECW had to be ECW. It couldn't come to Boston or New York and be, you know, WWF light. Uh, Jim, your thoughts? Yeah, I think people want the real experience. Also, ECW is the brand. You know, it's extreme. If people don't see that extreme real product, they're going to be disappointed. You know, the other day, was it last week, as we're recording this, New Japan had their show in California. And I was reading on Reddit, you know, it didn't completely sell out. It did okay, but it didn't completely sell out. And people were talking about how they were disappointed that it wasn't a full New Japan card. You know, a couple of years ago, Stardom, the women's promotion in Japan, came to New York. And Fumi Saito and I did a, uh, we did a, um, we did the commentary for the show. And I've been to Stardom in Japan, and I'm telling you, that show was exactly like you would get in Japan. And that crowd went insane for it. Now, if people want a product, they want the product. They are fans of that product. Someone who is a fan of scientific wrestling isn't going to go, oh, yeah, well, they're coming here to, uh, you know, New York. We'll give it a try because they're going to do our style. No, people want the actual product. That's you got to be true to your brand and true to your marketing. I was a big fan of the band Queen back in the late 70s, early 80s. That's going to surprise some people, but I was. And if Queen was touring, if they were going to do a show in Memphis or Nashville, they wouldn't suddenly become a country act. If you're in Memphis and you're right. you're buying a ticket for Queen, that's what you want to see. Steve, your thoughts on the question? No, you get you guys covered it completely. Uh, ECW had to be uh, you know authentic to themselves, and they certainly were. All right. It is Jim's turn for a question. I always, I always, I say this every week. I just looked at the clock and I'm like, this hour has already mostly flown by. I, I, I think we have time for one more question from each of us. St- uh, Jim, go ahead. All right. Let's do uh, Jerry Joy. Says, uh, many families claim to be the first family of wrestling, but who do you think is the most worthy of that moniker? I think the only first family of wrestling is Jimmy Hart's. I think, I mean, that's the only way. I mean, Bobby Heenan called his stable his family. So I guess you could go with that one, but I always associate that one with Jimmy Hart. How about you, Steve? I was leaning toward Bobby Heenan, but I think also the question kind of implies maybe a real-life wrestling family. So as long as we can include Rocky Johnson and Peter Maivia, I guess the Samoan dynasty would get my vote. I mean, right now it's got to be that one. I think they have surpassed the Von Erichs, the Funks, the Bachwinkles, etc. I mean, they did that probably within the last couple of years. Jim, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if you're not doing the uh, Anawaii family, then... You know, it's going to be interesting in the the next few years as far as, you know, a couple of years ago before the emergence of the Samoan dynasty, you know, you'd say the McMahons, but now here we are and no real McMahons seem to be involved with the WWE right now. And certainly things could change. But that's going to be interesting as far as the McMahon legacy in wrestling going forward. Other than the the Anawaii legacy, I mean, I guess even though there's not many of them, you can't deny the success of the Orton family. They may not have the numbers, but they may not have the quantity, but they certainly have the quality when it comes to success. They don't really get a lot of talk, I guess, when it comes to first family. 
things. Well, I mean, look at it this way. I mean, Bob Morton Sr., uh, using some weird uh, Irish pseudonym, uh, headline Madison Square Garden, so did Bob Orton Jr., and then we get to Randy Orton, who was, you know, one of the top stars of the previous decade. Yeah. So, all right. Any any thoughts from you, Steve? No, no. Again, you you guys have covered it. I, I don't have anything on that one, but I think I'm up for you a are, question, sir. so let me jump in. So, uh, John Ware is asking us, what's one topic for a podcast you wished you didn't discuss? Oh, you know what? I was going to end the show with that question. None. There, there hasn't been. You know, there has not been one episode that I looked back on and said, "Oh, I shouldn't open my big mouth talking about that." For God's <laughs> sake! Oh, I regret. I, there, there isn't one. <laughs> so Jim is. It, <laughs> let me ask you. I mean, I know you listen to the podcast pretty regularly. It was there ever something? that's like I don't want to hear about this. Or Steve, even you. Well, I, I came up with the idea for that ECW pilot episode, and it wasn't one of my favorites, to be honest. I like but that they, episode. You know, they can all they they can all they all, can all be a hundred, uh, you know, a, a perfect score. I mean, you know, I I get that we have like two hundred and sixty nine episodes, and one has to be the two hundred and sixty ninth best one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I totally get that one has to be two, the two hundred and sixtieth. But, you know, don't apologize for that show. I, I I enjoyed that show. I thought we did a great deal of a freewheeling and we had some fun. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my last appearance wasn't the best. Ah, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> All three of your appearances, including this one, have been outstanding, sir. Oh, you're too ah, No, I'm not. I mean, they, they have all been really well received. Uh, let me see. Steve kind of stole my question, so let me grab one really quick. All right. Oh, I like this one. I'm glad I got to this one. Justin Brown, I w- listen to a podcast that doesn't normally cover wrestling, cover Vince McMahon. They mostly did good, but they talked about Andre's 1980s heel turn, uh, was doing Andre dirty. By making him hated when Andre didn't want to. I'm pretty sure that Andre was fine with being a heel. What do you think about Andre not wanting to be a heel for things out for people outside of the wrestling bubble who think get things wrong about wrestling? I think the trope of the dastardly promoter cruelly forcing beloved wrestler into a heel run when they didn't want to is silly. But I see it occasionally. Jim, your, your thought thoughts on this? I'm sure all three of us are gonna say the same thing. Yeah, of course, Andre was always going to turn heel and lose to someone at the end. That was always in the cards. And if Andre, for whatever mythical reason, didn't want to do it, he could have gone to Japan, could have gone to Mexico, could have gone wherever he wanted. He could have gone to, to Turner. If, if he wanted to, except, you know, he already lost in Mexico. He already lost in Japan, but no, that's, that's a ridiculous thing. And, you know, when you talk to people who travel with Andre, and I'm sure Andre's a regular, you know, aside, aside from his size, Andre's a regular person like all of us. He likes some things, doesn't like other things. He has good days. He has bad days, just like all of us. But many people talked about how Andre was miserable a lot of the time, how, you know, he was in pain, how, you know, people would stare and things. And I'm sure it got tiresome at the end. You know, I don't buy into this gentle giant uh, mythos either. So, no, I don't think Andre had a problem with any of it. Steve, your thoughts. Well, and Andre just loved the business. He loved the uh, ritual of it, you know, playing cribbage, <laughs> getting drunk, uh, you know, doing all this normal activities. And, and when his body was breaking down to the point of where he probably was in fear of his life, I mean, he just kept getting more and more dates. He would work Japan, work Mexico. And, you know, after that last run in Mexico, um, he died, I think, a few months later. And, you know, it just, he, he didn't know any other life. I mean, he, he had the farm in LRB and he enjoyed that, but I think he enjoyed being an active wrestler and doing all the things that he was used to doing. Andre did a, uh, finish a Japan tour just like three weeks, I want to say, before he passed away. So you're right. He, you know, he, it was the only lifestyle he knew and, you know, he did it until the very end. I mean, to answer Justin's question, 
I'm the same way. I don't think Andre cared one way or the other. He knew where the money was. He had worked heel. He had been working heel in Japan for God knows how long before Vince McMahon turned him in the WWF. So, I mean, clearly he didn't have a problem with it. I, I understand it's not Justin's question. He was talking about, you know, these guys were going on and on on a podcast about, you know, oh, Vince made this poor tortured soul do something he didn't want to do. It's like, get out of here. A little known fact, there was a wrestler in WWF wrestler in the eighties named Dave Barbie, who Andre hired to keep people away from him. If Andre wanted to just go to the bar and, and drink and be left alone or just hang out with his friends, didn't want to be bothered. Dave Barbie got money, you know, to act as his bodyguard to keep people. You know, so Andre could just live his life in a little bit of peace. Jim Valley, I want to thank you for returning to Stick to Wrestling, the king of recovery, and you did it on very short notice. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to do it. All right, Steve, I, I want to thank you for your contribution as well. Well, it's great to be here, and it was really nice to meet Jim today. Long overdue. All right, uh, yeah, hopefully we can do it again sometime. We'll definitely do it again sometime. And uh, I want to thank everyone who contributed by answering, a, asking a question. I hope we got to yours. If we didn't, it's just a time thing. My apologies. I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum so that we can speak to the Stick to Wrestling universe. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does producing this podcast. Thank you, Lightning Lou. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.